My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm visiting with James Tipton. Uh, everybody calls him Tip. We're here in Panama City. Uh, Tip is a, a veteran of the United States Air Force, did 23 years, um, enlisted in the Air Force, and uh, did 13 deployments overseas, combat veteran, extremely active in the uh, veteran community here in Panama City. Uh, he's also a mentor for Sacred Mountain Retreat in South Dakota. He does a number of um, mentoring programs for veterans and first responders with PTSD. And um, Tip, I, I wanna just get started with, uh, with talking about where you were born and raised, what it was like growing up, what led you into the Air Force, and um, you know, we'll get into your leadership philosophy and kind of what shaped, uh, shaped that philosophy. Sure. I was born in Amro, Texas in uh, January of 1966. And my father worked on the railroad. I didn't know him very well. Obviously I was young, but from 1966 to 1968, we went from Amarillo, Texas to Memphis, Tennessee. My sister was born in Memphis. And then sometime shortly after that, then we went to Baltimore. And um, then we went to foster homes. And then from that point forward, I lived in foster homes until I was six. And then I was adopted. Well, I, came out of my last foster home when I was six and lived with my current family that adopted me. They adopted me when I was 15 years old. And then I uh, stayed there until I was 20 and I was in the military. What, what led to you going into foster care? My, my father, and I don't have the whole story because my sister passed away in 1985 in a car wreck. God rest his soul. It's tough to talk about. She was the same, held our family together. But uh, she had all the answers and knew everything, so I really never got to talk to her about it. But um, my mother was um, an alcoholic, and my father was always in trouble. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I know he changed his social security number a few times. And he was always traveling. And my, my mother, with her being an alcoholic and uh, bipolar, they placed us in foster care. And I remember visiting my father in jail. I remember fights and disputes and 
a lot of different things. And I remember living in different foster homes until I went to my last home. And uh, just remember the uh, anguish and hatred and discontent and uh, horrible stories. I could just tell you nightmares and things that I still deal with. So my mother being a bipolar and alcoholic and my father being in trouble, prison, jail, etc. I never really got the true story of exactly what precipitated foster care. And I don't know if, if and, and it's interesting to know where I am, and I'm kind of going to bounce around, Dave, because kind of go all over the place, but it's interesting to see where I am in my life now at 55, doing so much in-depth work, volunteer work and help and care and enjoyment in my life with PTSD and not realizing my entire life was combated with PTSD. And I'm talking about from the infant. I lived in foster homes. Some of it's tough to talk about, Dave, because I remember living in foster homes where they would cut the stairs off in the basement and make us live in the basement and not allow us to come upstairs. And they would hand food down through the basement door to where the steps used to be and make us live in the basement. We were literally confined to the basement like prisoners. It was awful. And I remember this as a child. I'm talking about four, five, six years old three years old and the memories that I still have of these homes being mentally, physically, sexually assaulted, beaten, abused. And my sister, Chris, caring for us and taking care of us and letting us know everything was gonna be okay. And uh, growing up and going through life and not understanding that these memories and thoughts and things that had happened to you turned into what we now call PTSD. And then you move your last time into a foster home. And I'll digress in a minute and talk a little bit about more of these foster homes, but you move into this last place and you think that now you're in a safe haven to which turns back into a complete rehashing of what you went through this whole last six years of your life. So it's really interesting, like it's just a full circle of, uh, or cycle, if you will, of, of what you went through. Though I don't wanna say anything disrespectful or, or demeaning about my parents or the family that I lived with, but you know, every family has their own inequities, if you will, but my parents were what, what I would describe now as alcoholics, but um, they quit drinking eventually, but my, 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 their youngest son, they had three children. Their youngest son died in a fight from alcoholism. Their oldest boy died from AIDS, contracted HIV from sharing heroin needles in vacant homes in Baltimore city. And then their daughter is in Pennsylvania now. And, um, there was nothing but physical, mental and sexual abuse throughout all of that until I joined the military. So it was a complete cycle of what I had experienced when I was a child. And 
and uh, that's what I saw my whole life. And I didn't realize when I joined the military and deployed and went to combat that my head was already ridden full of PTSD. And the experiences that I had. So now to sit back and then go to treatment and assist and care and help other people and realize that, you know, how broke I am. It's a struggle. <laughs> it's a fight. And um, sometimes it's hard because I talk and I speak and I help and I do a lot for a lot of people. And I hear people say, oh, you articulate well, you speak well, you do all these volunteer things. And it's very easy to go and speak and help and assist. And but sometimes it's odd because you sit back and you really and realize that it's so hard to apply it to yourself. It's difficult sometimes. And to realize how broke you really are yourself. It's been a hell of a ride, <laughs> let me tell you that. Um, I'm grateful for my family for taking me in. But um, it's interesting, the cycle that we went through, but that's what precipitated my joining the military. I knew that if I didn't join the military, I'd become an alcoholic or die. That was truly my rationale. I wish that I could sit here right now and say on this podcast and say to the world and say to my friends and say to my family that I joined for my love of my country and for the love of the United States Air Force. Didn't have a damn thing to do with it. I love my country and I would serve again and I served honorably and I absolutely love my country and I would take a bullet for my country. I would die for my country. But sometimes <laughs> I laugh to try to keep crying. It breaks my heart to sit here and say that I didn't join as a true patriot at the time. I joined to save my life. I joined to sacrifice my life to save my life. Kind of crazy, isn't it? I knew if I didn't, I'd end up where they are. And my brothers are dead right now. So, <clears throat> Interesting cycle, isn't it? I, so, you joined the Air Force. Did you have anybody in your life that was in the Air Force I did. previously? One of my best friends, Troy, that I went to high school with, his stepfather, uh, his name is Roland. He retired as a senior, Master Sergeant in the Air Force. And uh, I spoke to him quite a few times. I wanted to join the Marines or the Army or something. I just want to be a badass, like infantry. At the time, I didn't know what the hell anybody meant, like, but be an infantryman or do something in combat or do something just ridiculously stupid and just go kill people and just do something like just be, you know, some badass dude. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. Like, I was just having this conversation about PTSD and that whole self destructive. Yeah part of really like you're not dealing with PTSD that's a symptom of PTSD like just self-destructive like I'm gonna put myself in as many fucked up situations absolutely because what I've I feel, yeah I've been through it all yeah. nothing can hurt me now 
And that's kind of how you feel when you go in. And when you've been through what I've seen and what I've done and what you experience, it's like, I'm battered in hell right now. Nothing can hurt me. And I felt that way when I went in. I'm not going to die. How can I? Look what I've already lived through. So, um, and then I went in and the Marines and the Army and these guys really didn't impress me with what they told me. Then I went over and talked to the Air Force recruiter and, you know, they lie and they tell you a bunch of bullshit. And then I wanted to fly. And uh, then um, I messed around and got divorced before I was 27 and a half and never finished school, so I didn't get to become a pilot. I flew private before, but I um, went and they said, well, you could fly on AWACS, which I thought would be really cool. And, but it was going to be 18 months to get in. I said, screw that, man. I don't have 18 months. I'll be in jail in 18 months. So you got to get me in now. So they put me in nuclear weapons, which I thought that sounded really cool. It was okay. <laughs> I mean, if you knew what I did, it wasn't anything impressive. So I stayed in that for four years and I cross-trained in conventional munitions and I went to munitions accountability and then I made a whole career in munitions and it was pretty badass. But, uh, and then I was a first sergeant for seven years and I had a great career. Let me tell you something, I would do it all over again. Every bit of it, it was amazing. And um, I love what I do and I love my country and I would absolutely do all of it all over again. Um, If I had the choice, I would change some things I've done in my life, but not my military career. So one of the stories that you shared, and you can choose not to talk about it, but like I feel like you would still be in the Air Force if not for certain circumstances. Yeah, that was my accent. <laughs> So I served 22 years, eight months, and eight days in the United States Air Force. And before my dad passed away, this was my stepfather, Fred, who's my father. He adopted me. And he used to call me boy. And uh, what a tough son of a bitch he was. A loving man, so to speak, but he never told you he loved you. Um, never permitted you to cry. Would beat you to tell you you can't cry. <laughs> just a hard son of a bitch, but a great dude, you know, just a good man and uh, worked hard. And, and he grew up in the, in the, he was born in 1931. So in that era of just hardworking, had an eighth grade education. My mother had a ninth grade education. She was a seamstress her whole life. My father was a carpenter, steel worker. They both were, you know, um, cutting and hanging tobacco in tobacco farms in North Carolina when they were eight, nine, 10 years old, rolling tobacco, smoking actual tobacco leaves when they were kids. I mean, this was just hardcore hillbilly family, not rednecks, not country folks. These were hillbillies from North Carolina. Gotta love them. I mean, just amazing people. I'm telling you, the utmost respect, I love them. But hardcore, man, my father was hardcore. There was no room for crying. There was no room for messing up. When he told you to do something, you did it. And I got some whoopings, let me tell you something. And, uh, and I know I digressed off the question about my um, accident and things, but uh, so anyway, he used to always say, boy, whatever you do, do it right the first time and go to the top. Always be the best that you can be. And I'm gonna digress later and tell you a story about my best friend's father. 
and how I learned some things from him too and what's instilled in my mind about leadership and um, how anal retentive I am and the way I do things. But my father said to me, whatever you do, always do the best. Always do it right the first time and always strive to go to the top. And I never forgot that from him. And he was a hard worker. And I watched him just blood, sweat, and tears all the time what he did for our family. So it was ingrained in me to go to the top, go to the top, go to the top. And I knew when I went to the Air Force, I had to go to the top. And anybody that's watching in the Air Force, the top in the enlisted forces an E-9 and Chief Master Sergeant, and that's where I needed to go. Well, unfortunately for me, I only made it to senior, senior master sergeant, E-8. 22 years, eight months, eight days was my stint in the Air Force. 20 couple years, I'm sorry, 18 or whatever, however many years, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't recollect at this time, but it was time for me to go to the promotion board for chief. And my board package was perfect because I just, listen, we're going to talk about anal retentive, OCD, somebody who is just absolutely like out of control right here. Uniform, everything. And I uh, just remember my dad telling me, boy, go to the top, go to the top. So I strove for everything to be perfect. So I made it and I made first sergeant and I was first sergeant for seven years. And they said, look, first sergeant, it's mathematically impossible. There's no billet right now for a chief as a first sergeant. So you have to go back to the mission storage area. We call it the bomb dump. So I raised my hand like, this is what I do, let's go. What do I have to do? And they said, well, one, you go back to the bomb dump and two, you haven't deployed in 13 months. I'm like, what was me? After deploying 13 times in 22 years. So I raise my hand, I go, I go back to the desert. We're getting pummeled because the bomb dump is off base and we're getting bombed and mortared and shot at and crazy shit all the time, 24 seven. And, um, a lot of crazy stuff happened when I was in the desert. Stuff that would make a grown man cry. I volunteered to work at the hospital. I volunteered to do uh, many, many things. I mean, I'm talking about 23, 24, 27 hour days before you put your head on the pillow. And that's, you know, after you get off work, I'm working a 12, 14, 16 hour day, going and volunteering at the hospital, bringing troops in off of Chinooks and bringing them into um, Mac hospital, Nash hospitals, bringing them into the hospitals on the base and, and seeing some really crazy stuff. And, um, anyways, I come home after some pretty crazy stuff happening and I'm home for three days and lady runs stop sign. Well, this is after my, my wife at the time asked me to go home to see her family in South Dakota, which I just didn't want to deal with. I didn't want to see anybody, I didn't want to be around anybody, I didn't want to do anything. So we go home and three days later, Lady Rose stop sign hits me head on Richmond back. So lo and behold, long story short, I'm medically retired instead of getting promoted. So that broke my heart because I didn't make it to chief. I, di I didn't get a 75% retirement, I got a 50% retirement. I lost $1,200 a month pay raise, you know, plus et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. And I didn't do what I told my dad I was going to do. I didn't make it to the top. So, you know, but it is what it is. Life goes on. And then progressively, my injuries got worse and neurological and et cetera, and made me become a paraplegic. And 
my life spiraled down fast, fast, faster than you can believe. And then it put me right back in that cycle where I thought I'd never be. Alcoholic, drug addict, dark places, suicidal, awful, horrible place for five or six years. It was bad. It took me a long time to come out of that. So and then here I am now just volunteering, doing good things again. So now I feel like I'm back on top of the world, so to speak. As soon as my house gets finished. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's another incredible story. But first, like I've talked about you in a couple of other episodes. Um, you know, we met in South Dakota at the Sacred Mountain Retreat, where you were one of the mentors. And, um, you know, it was you, Ryan, and Jonathan Joe. And, um, you know, three, three amazing guys. And, uh, like, the entire group there was incredible. But you know that in any group, more than a couple of people, there's going to be connections that are stronger between one person and another. And well, I feel like I had a connection with everybody, but each connection is so different individually. And um, there's there's some experiences that you and I share um, that. Uh, I think makes it quite a bit easier for me to share with you and probably, well, you're pretty open. You've been out on the circuit speaking and stuff like that, but you know, it's been, it hasn't been easy for me to open up with quite like you, you are and I feel like the benefits that you've provided me and probably countless others just through your your openness to share your experiences. Well, it wasn't easy to just sit and talk and bring it out. It takes a while, you know, so. Well, what's interesting is that I, I, I just interviewed this guy named Tyler Foley, who essentially what he talks about in his message is his goal is to empower people to tell their story because of the impact that it can have on, on others. Taking you, for example, and your experiences and how openly you've shared them as, I don't know that I'm there yet, but I feel like me sharing some of the stuff that's really uncomfortable for me to share could possibly help somebody else. Absolutely. I think, I think what you're alluding to, and it makes sense is, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I just spoke as a guest speaker at the annual gala for the Sacred Mountain Tree Center. And a gentleman came up to me and he was the keynote speaker. But he came up to me a few days before the event. And he said, hey, Tip, I want to talk to you about your speech. And I said, sure. And 
I showed him my speech and then I showed him and it was just 10, 12 pages of just shit I had wrote down and then I put three by five cards together and I had like 10 of them and he says, so, so talk to me about your speech and I talked to him for three or four minutes and I rambled on, I didn't ramble on actually, I spoke relatively well about what I was going to say and he said, I like it, this is nice, he said, but rip it up, I said, what the hell are you talking about, he said, you articulate well, your message is good, and I think people will like you. And I said, well, what the hell are you going to rip it up for? He said, you don't need a speech. He said, speak from your heart. People don't want to hear you read. They want to hear your message from you, from your heart. He said, rip it up. He said, do not bring your speech to the stage. And I ripped it up and I didn't. And I spoke from my heart. And the most amazing thing was, after we spoke, I had two Purple Heart recipients. And a shit ton of people come up to me and say, dude, you're the best. You spoke the best. We love your message. You connected with us. You made us laugh. You made us cry. You made us smile. We were so connected with you. It was amazing. And we appreciate your story. And the fact of the matter is, Dave, is there's so many people that have similar stories that you and I have, that if they will articulate that and share and get it out, that I think that more people will be able to connect and open themselves up and be able to identify not only with themselves, but with others that have PTSD or have been through similar issues and be able to move forward in their lives. And for us to be able to open up, one, it's not easy, it's a struggle, it takes a long time. But to be able to become comfortable with the fact that you can share your story and that you connect with others. And that what you're actually doing is not only healing yourself, but helping others to find their way to move forward. You know, the fact is, and it's not just, I mean, let me tell you something that I say sometimes, and this happens with being a para or quads or amputees. We get this reserve thought in our mind that when you lose a limb or you can't walk or you can't use your arms or whatever the case is, is that your life's over and you can't do anything anymore. You're done. You're finished. You're, you're a piece of shit. You're, your life is over and you're not worthy. That's bullshit. And I didn't realize that, Dave. I didn't understand that. I was just as distraught with life and ready to kill myself and thought life was over until I had a few friends dig me out fast and I found my faith again. And I still struggle with that. And, uh, but once I started volunteering and telling my story and helping other veterans and helping other paras and other quads and not all, I'm not talking about just veterans, especially now, fire, EMS, police that I'm doing with Sacred Mountain. And I'm also a peer mentor with uh, Oscar Mike Foundation. And I do a lot of work with the Independence Fund and I do work with um, um, uh, a lot of organizations. The, the Stand Up and Play Foundation is so near and dear to my heart um, with, the, with the golf, the paranormal paragolfers and all of these organizations that I work with. So now I travel around all over the country with the American Electric Bowling Association. And when you travel and you speak and you talk to people and you share your story and not only just sharing your story, but you stop and you take the time to listen to people and show that you care and hear their story, 
and then interject and talk to them and let them know that life can go on and life is good. It's wonderful and hard, man. And it really helps you and it helps you grow inside. So until I reached out and I was ready to not move forward at all with life. And I told my story at the gala about a scooter saving my life. I was ready to kill myself. And after I got through that situation and realized how well, real quick for those that are just listening and not actually watching the YouTube video, Scooter is this massive fur ball over here. What, what kind of dog is she? So she's a 105 pound Great Pyrenees. And uh, actually what happened, if you're not seeing the video or you, you haven't heard this story, uh, when I got in a wheelchair, I've only been in a wheelchair for four years. My accident happened in December of 2008 and my injuries progressed neurologically. I'm an incomplete para and I lost use of my right leg, then my left leg, and then my, my paralysis is creeping up my back and into my ribs and up the back of my neck, et cetera. But um, in any event, um, you know, when you come from being a combat vet, a first sergeant in the United States Air Force, 230 pounds, 9% body fat, chiseled in stone, if you will, and just, you know, an all around athlete to wind up in a wheelchair, fucking sucks. Like, the fucking borders, dude, it's awful. And um, I'm talking about instantaneously, like even though I talk about progressively how it worked its way up being neurological, what I'm talking about when you sit in this fucking chair, it's a game changer. It is a game changer. And uh, one day I was sitting out by a swimming pool and I don't know what happened. I just clicked my, this fucking wheelchair originally came with seatbelts on it. I clicked the seatbelts on and I started rolling myself in a swimming pool. That's all I saw, because I was done. And uh, she fucking came up and bit my arm and grabbed me, was jamming her nose in my chest and pounding on me. And she's PTSD and anxiety trained, she's a service dog does many, many other things for me. And uh, I'm trying to shake her off my arm and she's biting me and I'm bleeding. And I, this is all happening over, you know, some time. And when I realized what was going on and what was happening, then I uh, pulled my knife out of my pocket and I cut the seatbelts off my wheelchair and I rolled down in the concrete. I just hugged her and laid there for about an hour and just cried and realized I just about fucking killed myself. I took myself away from the most incredible dog and my best friend in the fucking world. And um, just at that point realized that I had put myself in the same shoes as many, many other paras, gods, amputees, disabled people that have that reserve felt in their mind that life sucks and life can't go on when you're disabled. And I called a couple friends and said, you gotta fucking help me. I struggled myself. And then from that point forward, now it took a while to get through this. It wasn't like the next day. But since then, man, I've been volunteering and traveling around the country for years. And um, look, I'm just an ordinary dude, dude. I'm just an average motherfucker. I am just another guy. But I'm gonna tell you something, life is good. And I feel good about what I do. I feel good about touching the hearts of many people. 
and I feel good about the lives that I've saved. And I feel good about the people that I help get in this paramobile paragolfer. And I feel good about the people that I help stand up and the people that I help learn how to bowl in a wheelchair and the people that I take fishing and surf fishing in my track chair and whatever it takes to help put a smile on somebody's face and make them realize that life's not over. I'm blessed. It is a good deal. Whether I've got to say a word or not, I've sat with people for hours and I said, look, I talk a lot, you know that. Sometimes it's hard to shut me up. But uh, some days I just sit for hours and listen to people and just see the smile on her face. And I had an 11-year-old kid come up to me one day and asked me if, I could hug, if he could hug me. And I said, sure. Why? And he goes, my dad hasn't stood up for 15 years and played golf. And you put him in that golf chair. And my dad had a golf ball for the first time in like eight years and whatever it was. You know, all the dates and times I don't recollect. But, and he said, um, we went upstairs and my and my mom were crying. And he said, you made my, you made my dad cry. He said, my dad's, my dad's a Marine. <laughs> you made him cry. You got my dad to stand up and hit a golf ball. And he said, I want to hug you. So <laughs> those are the days that make you realize that life's, life's worth living. Because it's not just about me, it's not about you, it's about the people that we touch and about the lives that we affect and we impact. And uh, that's what drives me. Um, I lay around here sometimes for two or three days in my bed and feel sorry for myself. And then I next thing I realize, I go, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? Look at the people that you touch and you impact and that you're still working with and you're helping. And then it just drives me and keeps me going every day, you know. So sorry I'm rambling now, but nah, man, because all of that ties right in. Like so let's go to the whole leadership philosophy thing, because who you are right now as a leader, I can almost fucking guarantee that as a first sergeant and the way that you led then is so much different than the way you lead and talk to people now. Yeah. It is tough because it's sometimes it's hard to segregate that, if you will, because I am still a directive, hardcore, and this is, so many people would say, this is me, like, God, do it my way. This is the way I want it done because, man, I am so anal retentive and, like, do it right the first time. Do it my way. Don't fuck it up. It has to be done. And I, you, it's, there's just one way to do things. Do it right. It doesn't have to be done a second time. Just do it, you know? There's no margin for error. But it's hard because in a situation like being in a chair and working with people, I see that. But, but still, how I come across to people, how I direct, how I talk, it still comes across that way sometimes. But let me digress way back and tell you where some of this came from. And it came back from when I was young. One, it came from all the way back when I was in foster homes because it was the survival of the fittest all the way back from when I was a kid. I'm talking about street fights when you were five, six, seven years old, fighting for survival on the streets like in the middle of the night getting your ass looked in Baltimore City yeah yeah in the inner city dude right as a white kid in Baltimore City trying to keep from getting your ass beat 
Well, I'm familiar with Baltimore. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny that, because I know that we've talked about this, but I don't know that we've ever really dug into your time in Baltimore. Yeah. Because that's no joke. No. <laughs> and then transferring up to the county when I moved from Baltimore City to Carroll County and then living in the rural farmland, it didn't get picked on for being an adopted kid. And then fighting my way through school, being an adopted kid. So all I did was fight, fight, fight. So then I grew up fighting my way all the way through school. Then I wanted to be an athlete. Well, then I had this peer pressure of, you know, I need to have Nike shoes and Levi jeans and whatever to fit in because of peer pressure. And then my mom was like, well, we don't have any money. If you want that, you gotta get a job. So when I was 15 years old, I had to go get a job so I could buy these clothes to fit in with my friends. So I never really got to play the sports I wanted to, even though I was, I was a good athlete. So on all through that, but I'm digressing off of this leadership. So, well, you know, team sports, I think has a whole, that has a huge influence on anybody's uh, leadership philosophy. Well, and I played baseball and I played football and I played soccer and I did all that. When I played football, I played rec council football. I wanted to play high school football. That was good. I played first string offense, first string defense and special teams. I never left the field. So I wanted to play high school ball, but I didn't get to because I had to work only because in my mind I had to fit in because I was adopted and I grew up in this whole messed up what I thought childhood. So, but I had leadership skills then too because I was, I was the defensive captain, and, you know, so I had these leadership roles all the way through growing up as well. And I, my brother, my oldest brother, who I thought was one of my mentors, wound up being a drug addict, and he was my football coach. But um, I don't want to get off on that rabbit hole right now. But uh, he was a football player too. But my one of my best friends that I grew up with, and we're not we're not friends right now, and it really sucks, but. Um, his father, I just won't mention his name right now, but his father schooled me on so many things, and he was like my father, but he was an engineer, and he was the one that instilled in me even more than my father, uh, do things right the first time, and build things, and use your hands, and, and if you're going to design it and build it, build it right build it yourself, design it, or if you're going to have somebody build it, design it and show them what you want and have it built right the first time. So it lasts a lifetime. You don't have to redesign. And this guy was so tough, man. And I just saw him and me and my buddy used to get beat by him. And as a matter of fact, one time, I'll never forget this. We were playing with a Cox. Remember the little Cox airplanes that had the little fuel mm -hmm. with the little motors in them. You put the fuel in them and then fly the airplanes. They had a little remote. Someone had the strings and, you know, whatever. And uh, we were playing with the airplane one time and his father was so distraught with us. He said, I told you boys to put that plane away. We're like, all right, we're almost finished. He came over and stomped that plane into a million pieces. Like that's that's how hardcore he was. And, and uh, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. But uh, every Saturday and Sunday, he would drag us out of bed at like six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. He would pay us to do work around the house and uh, Work till lunch, then have lunch, work till dinner, and then we had to, I mean, it was just work, 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 work. So it was like, ever since I was young, this type of work has been instilled in me. You know, don't make a mistake. If you make a mistake, you're probably going to get beat for it. 
then you're going to have to redo it. Do it right the first time and you won't. I mean, that's kind of what I've been through uh, most of my life. And then as I went into the military, that anal retentiveness, OCD, do it right the first time paid off because uh, what I did, there was no margin for error, building bombs and working on missiles and nuclear weapons and doing things like there's just no margin for error. And there was no room for mistakes for me. And that's why I progressed in my career and got promoted one time every time and until my accident didn't make chief, which really sucked. But, um, but there's a reason, you know, maybe that's why I'm in this chair, you know, for what I do. And, and I don't question that anymore. I used to tell people this all the time. I know I'm kind of bouncing around again, like I told you I would. I always told people I would do my career all over again, maybe with a few changes. And those few changes would not be in this chair, this bullshit. Like, I think there's a reason why I'm in this chair. I think, and, and then I, like I told you, I struggle with my faith sometimes. I'm a Christian and I do believe, um, I don't go to church a lot because I think that too many people mix religion with good faith and Christianity and religion gets so mixed up with money and all this hypocrisy and different things that happen in this world. I just think you need to just have good faith and, and just be a good Christian and just do your thing and um, not get mixed up in all this other crap. But um, so in any event, my point is, is um, if, in, you know, like sometimes I struggle with the Trinity and, you know, maybe people are pissed off just hearing that right now. And I apologize if you are, but it's just my deal. Um, I do believe in Jesus. And I believe he's a, 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 a very um, righteous man and walked this earth. I have a doubt in my mind. I just struggle sometimes with father son and holy ghost thing and i just that's just me but but i'm given that right to think that way and i can and i can question and do whatever and you know maybe i have to resolve all that before you know whatever the end of the time is whatever but the fact of the matter is is now i believe that if that's god's will why i'm sitting in this chair and doing all the things that i do and and helping other people and what the fuck would i change it for why because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. There's a purpose and there's a reason why I'm sitting in this wheelchair. And I can't think of anything other than what I'm doing and how I serve and what I'm doing for other people. There can't be an explanation other than that. That's funny. You, you said the word purpose. So I've, I've recommended this book. I've, I've talked to I don't know how many people about it, but one of my professors in college, um, he, he's a retired um, Coast Guard. He, he was a commanding officer for a couple of different bases, Coast Guard bases. And uh, when he retired from the Coast Guard, he became a college professor. And um, he ended up being one of my mentors even though it was short-lived, I had him for several classes because he was awesome and I wanted him to take classes that he taught. But I shared with him some of my issues and it was just like, I think he could tell that I was struggling and he would pull me aside after class. And a lot of times I would show up early just to talk to him and he ended up going, listen, it's not required or anything, but 
I think you would really, really enjoy reading this book. Mm. It's, uh, it's like, have you ever heard of Victor Frank? I'm like, no. And he's like, so he wrote A Man's Search for Me. He, he is the founder of logotherapy. Logotherapy is like, it, he was developing it at the same time that Sigmund Freud was developing psychotherapy. So he um, had his entire thesis or whatever it was, his manuscript uh, at the time that the Nazis came in and started um, Rounding up all the Jews, and all he had with him was his manuscript, and they took it from him and destroyed it. His life's work, right? Well, then he spends the entire war until the concentration camps were liberated. He spent the entire time moving from concentration camp to concentration camp. And to say that he had survivor's guilt, I think is an understatement because like he was talking about how like there was all these incredible human beings that he watched just they watched And then he watched fellow Jews become terrible human beings. Wow. And end up becoming worse than some of the Nazis, you know? And, Sad. And those individuals surviving while these incredible, yeah. amazing human beings yeah. were exterminated. And then in his mind, he's a nobody and he survives and Trying to figure out and help others figure out the meaning of life or really find any meaning in anything, especially people that have gone through that kind of shit, oh, yeah. losing their entire family, their children, their spouses their siblings, just losing everything, and then they're left with what? And that's for each of us to decide. What is our purpose? Because what we think is our purpose, what we work towards our entire life, what we think is the pinnacle that we're striving for can be taken away from us in an instant. It can be something that we do to ourselves. It can be something that is just a fluke that somebody else's mistakes, somebody else's poor decisions affect us negatively and our entire life has changed, our entire life's trajectory, our, our life's plans are done. And then we're left with going, well, what the fuck do I do now? And 
what he talks about in that book is like, it's your choice. You can choose to let that event destroy you, or you can use that event to fuel you to do amazing things. You can use that to help other people. You can use that to help yourself become a better person. It's your own personal decision, how you frame things in your, in your own mind, in your heart, how you can take horrible things and say, okay, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something in there that I can use to help somebody else. And that's what you've been doing. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I think a lot of amazing people throughout history have chosen to be. The people that have allowed events to destroy them, that's what they have allowed to do. You know? it, they've made the choice. And, this, and it sounds really frigid and, and cold to say that it was their choice, especially if there was events that was that are out of their control, but it have happened to them, but it is, it's how, you, it is. how you choose to frame those events. Absolutely. And, and it's absolutely human nature to go, fuck, woe is me, you know? Like, God, like I, I had all these amazing plans. I had it. It was, it was right there at my fingertips and now it's gone. Okay, well, see what you made of it. And fuck, bro. Like, yeah, you were 9% body fat and a bad motherfucker. Who you are now, the shit that you have accomplished from a wheelchair, the, the impact that you've had on so many other people's lives, you probably don't even know how many people you've impacted. It's true. And it goes back to that whole cliche attitude of it's all about choices because I could just choose to be sitting here feeling sorry for myself and I don't want to. But it also goes back to all these people that just sit down every day and have these nine to five jobs and just get caught up in this whole mediocrity of life. It's all about choices for them too, Dave. Yeah. I mean, look how much more and what people could be doing every day and how much they could be impacting lives and they get stuck in what they think is a rut and they have more than they realize or they could be doing more for people if they would just kind of get out of that rut that they don't realize that they're in or get out of that box that they're in and, and open themselves up and, and make better choices and choose to do things with their life or help people. Um, I'm not sure where I'm really going with that. It's about choices, I guess I want to say. Well, um, I, and here's something that I 
because I, I was struggling with this this morning. This morning. What you're talking about, and, and, and it's, it's easy to refer to they or them, and, but it's me too. Like we all we all get in that rut. Oh yeah, I still and, do. Yeah. And and I, I I spent some time this morning parked in the parking lot, going, like you know, my buddy Eric. I just went to his funeral. You know, like saw a bunch of people that I used to work with. Saw people that Ago, and I fucking hated their guts. And I saw them, and that animosity, that anger that I had towards them in the setting at my friend's funeral, all that shit melted away. It didn't fucking matter. You know? It's, I could allow that to eat me up and blame them for my circumstances, or I could go, you know. And life's too short and the stuff that I'm doing right now I feel like having these conversations with people like you and hopefully reaching somebody that needs to hear it like they're about to eat a bullet or wheel themselves into their pool and they don't have it all to grab them by the arm you know maybe they're sitting at home Pounding the fifth of Jack Daniels, going through YouTube, just hoping something pops up that'll fucking speak to them, and it'll be this conversation between you and I that makes them go, "Fuck, all right, I gotta suck it up," and like, there's actually something in this experience that can help somebody else. Oh, and yeah. that, that's my. Purpose. And you know, you just made a point, and you said life's too short. But here's the point about that, and I, I, maybe it sounds cliche, and I tell people this all the time. Life is too short, but it's the longest fucking thing we ever do. <laughs> so do something about it and fucking change it. Make choices to be more positive or help other people or pull your head out of your ass and fucking do something about it and start living, you know? And I always say this to people all the time, just fucking live. Live. They're like, what do you mean, live? Fucking live, dude. Just start living. You know, stop getting caught up in all this bullshit. And like, I haven't watched TV in, well, first of all, my house has been destroyed for accounting today, two years, seven months, and nine days, 10 days, 11 days, I don't know. Tomorrow will be 11 days. And I haven't had a TV, uh, miss it. And I got to do other things to keep myself entertained, hanging out with my dogs, uh, doing all kinds of shit, volunteering, helping people. There's things you can do to um, just go out and not get stuck with stuck in the media, stuck in all this other bullshit that's going on in the world. Now you can't keep yourself hidden from that. But listen, um, it's not as bad as everybody makes it out to be. You know, life is good, and it is short. But remember this: it is the longest fucking thing we ever do. So you better grab by fucking horns and, and go, and enjoy it, and take advantage of it and realize that this, you only got one shot at it. 
You only have one shot at it. And this fucking bullshit, copping out, fucking I want to off myself because I can't handle it, that's chicken shit. And I've been there many, many times, sitting at fucking home one night with a bottle of Jack in one hand and a pistol in the other, thinking which one's the fucking easiest way to go. It's not the answer. And I'll sit here on fucking video, on audio, whatever people are listening to and tell you, it ain't the fucking answer. It's not the answer. Grab a friend, pick up the phone, reach out to somebody. It's not the answer. There's ways to get through this. I'm telling you because I've been there. I've lost friends. I've lost family. I've lost comrades. I've lost military vets. I've lost many, 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 many people. And I tried it myself and it ain't worth it to fucking what long-term answer to short-term problems. Fuck it. Suck it up buttercup and fucking live. There's just too much to live for. And there's too much out here. And there's too many people that give a shit. And there's way too many people that like me and Dave and we can help you. And uh, life is good. It's fucking good, man. And you know, people go, I can't. I can't. I hate people saying that. I can't. Can't means one of two things. You don't know how or you don't want to. If you don't know how I'll teach you, you don't fucking want to, I'll motivate you. We'll help you get through shit, you know? So as you said, so much troops in the military. Look at tell me you can't. People get killed when you say you can't. <laughs> you know? So I had another guy that taught me this when I was in the military too. No energy. Listen, this makes a lot of sense. It sounds very cynical, but it's very profound. If you clear your mind, your ass will follow. Think about that. Clear your mind. Clear your fucking mind, wake up in the morning, clear your mind and your ass will follow and you'll get a lot done and you'll move forward. And uh, it helps. Whatever you gotta do to figure out how to clear your mind. I don't care what that means. Go outside and meditate, go outside and swim, go outside and fish in the morning, go outside and hug your dog, fucking take a nap. I don't give a shit what that means. Clear your mind, your ass will follow. Just simple, simple fucking things like that. But life is good, man. Uh, there's too much to live for. And there's too many people out there to help. And if you feel sorry for yourself and you think you can't get through it, grab some other motherfucker that's feeling down and help them through it. And you'll fucking feel it and you'll experience it and you'll understand what it means. And if you you know you think you can't help yourself, go help somebody else and you'll, you'll get it. You'll absolutely get it. There's way too many people out there that need help and that need to get through serious situations. And when you think your situation's bad and you think you've got it bad and you don't, you're in the lowest spot, trust me, there's another 10 or 15 or 20 people or 100 people that got it way worse than you. I know that. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm sitting here and can't walk. And I thought I had it bad. It's just not worth sitting around feeling sorry for yourself, saying life's no good, because it's bullshit. Life is good, man. Life is amazing. And you just really have to figure it out. And it's not that hard. We've skirted around the whole leadership thing. Everything that we've talked about really is a, um, a testament to who you are as a leader. But are you able to articulate your leadership philosophy there's two things. There's your time in the Air Force and how you led 
men and women that we're going to be working with you in combat. And then there's the leader outside of the Air Force, the leader that is talking to other uh, disabled vets, disabled people that um, know, need to feel that the limitations that they feel are there. It's, and, and I don't know because I don't have those limitations, but I can tell by how inspired you are, how inspirational you talk about things and how you've touched other people's lives, that there is more to life when you're confined to a wheelchair than feeling sorry for yourself. So there's that leader and there's the leader that you were in combat. Is there a contrast or is it very similar? It's very similar. For me, Dave, without going into all these uh, scientific methods and psych, uh, uh, psychological methods or clinical methods or, you know, schoolings or whatever we did, you know, going through Maslow's theories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a very directive person. I'm telling you, I'm a hard ass. And I learned this, and this is where I'm going with this about me and my leadership style, and then kind of give you Can I just give an example? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Earlier today, we went and picked up three coolers. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I'm 46 years old. I you know. think I've never strapped down some I know. coolers? <laughs> I know, and it's hard. And it, it's tough, I know, and then here I am, I'm like, tie them down this way, and put these on here, and then, but you see how I am, I mean, so it's tough, and, and I'm an extremely directive person, and I'm a, I, it's hard for me to hand you this eight ball and say, polish that ball, it's just hard for me. I got to hand you this eight ball and three different style rags with the polish and say, here's how I want you to do it. And I want you to polish it with this and with this rag and this polish and then this rag and this ball. And then this is how I want it to be when it's done. Instead of me just going, Dave, polish that eight ball. It's fucking difficult for me. It really is. And it's not, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what it is for me. If it was a trust factor with the way I was raised and the way I was brought up. And I just have no fucking idea, but I'm telling you that I'm a directive, hardcore, give directions and guidance person, but I, there's no margin for error for me. I'm, I'm literally now, I know I'm all over the place, but it's like, I just hired a guy to come by my grass. And I said, this is what I want done. This is how I want you to do it. And then I go back and I'm like, look, don't forget to do this thing. He's like, look, I've been doing this for a long time and I made a million dollars doing this and you don't have to tell me how to do it. But if I miss something at the end, you can come back and tell me. And then I watch him for a couple minutes. And he's like, I got this. And then I come out and I go, hey, but what? He's like, I got this because he already can tell how I am. <laughs> but I, listen, and I'm telling you, man, I am, there's no margin for error. You got to cross every T, dot every I, 
I'm very OCD, very anal retentive. I want it done right the first time. If I'm paying for something to be done, and so and it's the same with being in the military. If I'm sending you to combat, I don't want a single motherfucker to get killed. You're coming home with all 400 troops, not 399, not 398. You're coming with 401. Did you bring home a dog or did you kill somebody? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm telling you. So for me, I'm not sure where it stemmed from and how it came about. But I'm, I'm an extremely directive person. You've already experienced that. So instead of me telling you today, hey, Dave, just tie those three quarters down on the back of my, on my, whatever you call that on the back, uh, uh, the cargo carrier, I got to fucking come over there and go, hey, stack them this way, tie them down this way, grab them through the handles, put the cargo straps down, do this, and tie them up like this. Man, you're a vet, you're a firefighter, you're a scuba diver, you're fucking, you've done all this shit, but do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how I am? Yeah. But no, man, I'm right there, and I'm like in your ass, and I'm like, hey, motherfucker, you tie that shit down right. You see how hardcore directive, like, man, I'm in your ass, and it better be done right. And hey, before you get in that van, make sure you tug on those lines and they're tight. Did you hear me? I did say that, did I? So... <laughs> Whatever kind of leader you want to call that, and I don't know, I don't know if that's, it's not necessarily a lack of trust, it's that, uh, no, that, that, that is what it is, yeah, that is exactly what it is because you, well, you don't yeah. know what I'm capable of, yeah, but now, what I we gonna, went and did the same thing again tomorrow. No, I'd just be like, hey, Dave, you got this. Now, it was different when I was training troops because I trained them and I knew that I've signed them off and they're good to go. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's tough, man, because my leadership style is really hard because it's hard to just release people and go get it done. And then they come back and go, oh, I, I couldn't do this. What the fuck do you mean you couldn't do it? I gave you the tools, the skills, the direction, and the equipment to do it. What do you mean you couldn't get it done? If you couldn't get it done, why didn't you come and tell me? Right. Why didn't you ask me? Or what do you mean? What? You didn't know how? You didn't want to? You didn't have the tools? What do you mean you couldn't get it done? So for me, it's tough to understand why you can't get something done if you have everything. You have the money, you have the equipment, you have the time, you have the knowledge, you couldn't get it done. It doesn't calculate for me. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So that irritates the ever living shit out of me. Now, if you've never been trained, and I didn't give you gloves so you have blisters, now I understand why you're crying about blisters. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. And, and what you're talking I about- I struggle is, with all this. But that, in and of itself is a key component of leadership that people, a lot of people don't understand because, okay, one, if you tell somebody to do something, but you've never showed them how to do it, or you don't give them the tools to right. do it, and they fail, 
That's your You failed fault. them as a leader. Right. I concur wholeheartedly 100%. And I would never send somebody to do a job without giving them the guidance, direction, the tools, etc. But nothing irks the fuck out of me more than knowing. Like I hire but, somebody but to do a once, job. But once you know that they're capable of doing it, then you got to back off and let them go. That's hard, dude. But, but it's because I've had my balls busted or burned or whatever so many times around here, especially where I live, hiring people around here in the panhandle, it just taints you. That's probably why. And being in the chair now that you have to hire people and you have to depend on people to do things, oh, irks the hell out of me because I'm, I'm less independent as I used to be and I can't stand it. I'm, let me tell you something. I still do more than half of my neighbors do around here in my fucking wheelchair. I'm talking about still mowing my lawn and a zero turn mower and weeding and doing shit. But it fucking irks me when you hire somebody playing in the grass and pulling weeds. Yeah. Oh, I'll roll out of my chair and make the grass. Oh, fuck yeah, I will. But it just irritates me when you hire somebody to do something that says, I can do everything you just told me. I'm trained and I got all the equipment. And then you pay them. And they do a, a haphazard shitty job and it makes you stale and angry and harsh. And I don't know if that's just me or my leadership style or what it might be, but I think it has a lot to do with all of it. Well, and then there's the PTSD thing. Well, true. And people don't realize that not only is it PTSD from combat, so not only PTSD from, and I don't want to harp on this, going through three divorces. Not only is it PTSD from going through brothers and sisters, brothers dying, a sister dying, two sisters that are now alcoholics and drug addicts. PTSD from going through childhood trauma. I'm talking about a whole fucking life of PTSD. Now tell me how that affects you going through your life and how you, uh, how you, uh, further yourself through your leadership role and how you affect your daily life and what you do every day and how your mind is somewhat tainted or clouded or affected by this um, PTSD, if you will. But, and now we'll bring it back to the positive part where all of your experiences have made you an expert on talking with people that are suffering with PTSD and helping them realize that they're not fucking broken. We've had this conversation before that it's, you're not broken. You feel that way, but when you experience all the shit that you've experienced, that I've experienced, all the horrible things that can happen to somebody, how we make physiologically, you are going to have physical effects from that physical Not trauma. Enough. Being able to, to have the experiences that we've had and be able to, to talk to somebody else that's struggling and, and say, you're not fucking broken. You're human. Like I've I've gone through I've gone through this. I've I've experienced this. 
This was perpetrated against me when I couldn't defend myself. This was something that happened to somebody that I love dearly. You know, there's all these things that we experience throughout our lives that, you know, we experience loss. And to be able to come through it and be able to share it with somebody else that's suffering, that feels broken, and you can empathize with them and say, yeah, no, I've felt broken too. I still feel broken at times, but I'm here to tell you that it's, it's normal to feel the way that you're feeling. After you've experienced what you've experienced, there isn't another human being in the world that would go through what you've gone through and not feel broken. Absolutely. That means that you are feeling the way that you should feel. It's the human experience. It's how you were designed. It's how our bodies react to stress and horrible things. It's how we protect ourselves, how we insulate ourselves from even more pain. So when, when we can navigate that shit ourselves and then talk to somebody else that is just now starting to dip their their toe into that that really dark water before they plunge into that abyss and like really fucking lose their shit if we can like go hey, no man you're you're normal. And this is how you can turn what you're feeling into something positive. That's what I think like that the book that Viktor Frankl wrote, A Man's Search for Meaning, Finding a Purpose, Finding Out of Purpose. Like I don't know if you'd agree, but thinking you might, that you found meaning in helping other people that have gone through similar things that, that you have and in helping them change their mindset so that they, they don't follow through. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Anthony Neto, he's the uh, creator, the designer of the Paranormal Paragolfer, and he gave me this $31,000 golf cart. And I thought, how awesome was this? And this helped me stand and I played golf again. And I felt like I got my life back. And I went back to him after less than six months and I said, I want more. He says, what do you mean you want more? just changed your life. I gave you a golf cart. You're swinging the golf cart again. I said, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. I want to be a part of this. I want to do what you're doing. I want to touch lives. I appreciate what you did for me. And now I'm standing 
and I'm swinging a golf club and you gave me my life back, but I want to do it for other people. That's what this is about. It's not about me. I fucking made him cry. And I said, I want more. He goes, what do you mean you want more? I said, I want to be with you. I want to be involved. I want to be in your business. I want to be a part of this organization. So he gave me my chapter here in Panama City or the Panhandle of Florida. He said, cool, I'll make you the director of the Panhandle chapter. And now then I started doing my clinics and he gave me another card that said, but do you understand what I'm saying? Where I'm going with that was, is not only did I reach out and say, help me, help me clear my mind, help me, help me because I'm struggling because I'm broke. And he gave me a golf cart. But then I realized that there was more I could do. Once I felt good about who I was and knew that he helped me, then I thought, well, fuck this, man. If this is this good for me, how the fuck can I touch other people? How can I help other people? If this is this good and you can impact me this way and you can change my life, how the fuck can I reach out and touch other people? And look what I've done over the years. I'm talking about since 2018 and now it's 2021. Imagine how many people I've touched. Seriously. I'm talking about a shit ton. So, dude, that's what it's all about. Like I'm talking about now, and this is what I'm hoping we're reaching people here now and saying, look, it's not about, listen, we've touched on this and we've said this many times. Yeah, we feel broke. And sometimes we are broke. We're a little bit broke. We're not like all the way broke where we got to like pull the switch and turn the plug off and off ourselves and do whatever. Fuck that. That is way out of control. What I'm saying is, is like, if you feel like you're lost and you're out there and you're gone and you need help, reach out because there's people like me that that's where I was. And then Anthony helped me and all of a sudden he helped me. And now I've touched them hundreds, if not thousands of lives. And it's amazing because even though sometimes I still feel broke and I feel a little disconnected, which is bullshit. I need to get over myself. Seriously. I mean, I get it, but dude, Oscar Mike, independence fund, uh, uh, sacred mountain retreat center, Stand Up and Play Foundation, all these people that have touched me have impacted my life dramatically, like amazingly, and changed my life and made me into an incredible human being. But I don't even, can't even fathom and realize right now how many people I've touched because of the abilities and the tools and the strength and the knowledge that they've given me. And I've touched a shit ton of people. I mean that a lot. But now, now think about this. And this is another thing that, that and I, I can't take credit for this, but that guy, Tyler Foley, that I just interviewed, he talks about encouraging people, empowering people to tell their story. And that he is just that little drop in the pond that starts that ripple. And think about the ripple. But, but listen, what happens if you don't, if you actually don't go out and tell your story, then I'm going to tell you why. If you don't go out and tell your story and you don't share with people and they don't understand what's going on. So I had a guy contact me just a couple of days ago. 
We're on Facebook Messenger. And he said, hey, Tip, my name is, I think his name's like Brandon Stratton or Stratford or whatever. And we fish together. And I, and I apologize if he's listening to this because I hardly remember him because I know so many people. And he's like, hey, dude, I got this guy that's in a wheelchair and, and his bucket list says he wants to play golf. It's on his bucket list and he wants to check it off. Can you help me? I'm like, fuck yeah, I can help you. I got to stand up and play golf chair. I play golf, connect me with this guy. If I would have never told this guy my story, we would have never fished together. I wouldn't have this equipment and Anthony wouldn't help me out. I wouldn't be going to help this guy next week to check golf and off of his bucket list. So if you don't tell your story, you don't go out and reach out to people. And it's not that you gotta go out and blow your horn and go, woe is me, I'm fucked up and this happened to me. I'm just saying, you've got to share with people to touch people, to help people, to grow together, to fucking survive and live. It's that fucking easy sometimes. Sometimes it's that easy. It's, it's not about me, but if you don't share and you don't connect and you don't reach out, how can we help other people? That's funny. I, I, I feel like this is, it's, uh, it's that full circle thing that it's not about you. It's not about me, but man, does it fucking help. Absolutely it helps. And think about how, and it's a full circle again, think about how many people we've touched and then they touch and they touch and they touch. And Dude, I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending this time with me and talking to me about this. It was my honor, man. And I, I just can only imagine if just one person out there listens to this and goes, you know, I'm done doing something for myself. Or you know, I know the person that needs to hear this. Then, okay. then we're successful. I love you, brother. Thanks, man. Let's just keep, keep on keeping on and helping save lives, man. That's what it's all about. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.